Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Welcome to this month in sales enablement. My name is Felix Krüger. Welcome to the show. This is the very first edition. And to say I'm excited is such an understatement because I am joined by my co-host, sales enablement royalty, straight from Los Angeles, California. Please join me in welcoming Devin McDermott. Hello. <laughs> it is such a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show. And what's the weather like and the time over there in LA? I'm always curious to know. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm out in the desert, so it's about 80 degrees Fahrenheit and it's 6 p.m. So it's pretty incredible. <laughs> all right. So for uh, all the non-American listeners who have no idea what 60 degree Fahrenheit is, I'm sorry, guys, but I got the 6 p.m. part at least. Okay, perfect. Next time I'll come prepared with Celsius. I do not know how it works there. So <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We've got lots to talk about, and we are going to cover the latest insights from our expert interviews from this month on the Sales Enablement Podcast. We'll be talking about some stats and research around equality and salary benchmarking, specifically fitting for International Women's Day, which was this month. We'll be talking about some of the announcements in the sales tech space from an investment point of view, and also some insights around research covering the great resignation that is happening in sales right now, which should be particularly interesting to all the sales leaders listening to us. Let's dive right in and take a listen into some of the expert interviews that we have done. I think the very first one that we have was with Devin Holup, who is the partner sales enablement manager for Ring Central, And I am really fascinated with the partner enablement space also because my sales enablement roles in the past were also very partner enablement heavy and in some cases in nature very similar to the sort of partner enablement specific roles that you see out there and i just want to share with you the very first snippet that we have from devon a company like yours set up with a rich partner ecosystem and there's essentially lots of different partner sales teams that you have to deal with how do you effectively enable them without actually sitting in the office and having those relationships? Like, how do you go about that? Well, it's all about mindshare, right? Because a lot of these partners have thousands of products that they sell. It's not necessarily just technology platforms or software products. They may sell everything from pens to laptops to then software and things like that. So it's really creating mindshare. And the most challenging thing about partner enablement is everything needs to come together kind of seamlessly. You have to have your programming really well thought out and very intentional. You have to have on-target marketing that you're always tweaking to get the right message. You have to have great incentives. Your operations, your processes have to be very easy to work with. I think that's one of the greatest things about Ring Central's channel program is we're really easy to work with. And then you also have to have a great enablement team. And one of the best things about partner enablement is trying to merge all of those streams into this great, highly functioning mindshare superstar. All right. So mindshare superstar. I love that phrase. I know. <laughs> 
So Devin, from your perspective, what's been your experience in partner enablement in the past? Like, was that part of your sales enablement roles? And was that a specific focus or was it just kind of a side project for you? Yeah, it was most definitely a side project. And we didn't have a dedicated function. So it was not as well orchestrated as what Devin is doing. I got so excited about their best practice blueprint, cross-functional stakeholders, all of the perfect things coming together. But I'm actually building out a partner enablement function in my organization. So I will be digging into that podcast in a bit more detail as we start to scope that out. But it really hasn't been a key focus for me. Yeah, yeah, got it. I think generally speaking, any sales enabler out there and also any sales manager out there, I think anybody that you come across who is a really strong partner enabler is worth talking to because yeah. from my point of view, that's the ultimate skill set that you develop. If you have to enable a sales team that's not even yours, plus you're competing for mindshare for other products, I think when it comes to stakeholder engagement, which was also something that we spoke about on our podcast episode, when it comes to stakeholder engagement, this is really the master discipline and I think the strongest skill set you can develop as a sales enabler. So I think generally speaking, those really strong partner enablement specialists, they deserve a lot of airtime in the sales enablement space. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Let's listen to the next one, which was with Bill Mathias Jr. from ACI Learning. And with this one, we specifically talked about the case study that was his sales enablement program at ACI Learning. And let's take a listen. We didn't really release an org chart. Everybody has access to everybody here. And that stems from our CEO, Brett Shively, down. That stems with our COO, Tom Katsanias, down and spans the full ELT team. And I think that's an incredible culture to build where we have this belief in doing well by doing good and the idea that when we do the right things consistently, the revenue will follow. All right. So the specific piece that I'm keen to hear your thoughts about is doing the right things consistently and the results will follow, right? Yes. Now, I think this is a great attitude to have and certainly reflection of that strong leadership that they seem to have there at ACI Learning. From your point of view, how much patience is there generally in the organizations that you've previously worked with and also the organizations that you come across in the industry in terms of leadership being accepting of the process and being patient with results following? What's your experience there? Unfortunately, rare. I keyed in on a few things that Bill said. The word that came to mind was running a flat organization and not getting consumed by the hierarchy. So really focusing on the outcome and the part that we play together yeah. to make that outcome happen, especially in hyper growth mode. And something that, that really resonated with me and what you just asked is there's nothing more frustrating, especially in hyper growth companies and smaller startups than leaders who don't really want to get their hands dirty and don't really want to get involved and, and want to be the ones kind of orchestrating and driving all this change, but they don't want to plug into their role in actually getting these things done. And that's what allows us to do things consistently. And it keeps us from falling into the shiny object syndrome and, and trying all these new things. If they're in it, if they understand what it takes to actually deploy an initiative or achieve a goal, it really changes their mindset. I definitely put that on a post-it note on my wall. Do the right things consistently and revenue will follow. And I am going to be sharing that in meetings with my team. So I really enjoyed that interview. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it kind of speaks to the empathy of a leader as well. Yeah. If sales enablement is enabled by a leader, 
everybody's always talking about getting senior executive sponsorship and that support by senior leaders in order to make sales enablement initiatives happening. And I think that empathy by a senior leader in understanding what's involved in sales enablement, how difficult it is to create that alignment internally and to get contribution from other departments adjacent to sales, mm -hmm. I think is certainly necessary to have that long-term success and also to have the freedom to execute for a while before you really see those metrics improving. So yeah. For all the senior leaders out there listening to this, this is what we need. Yeah. Get over <laughs> your title. Get into the weeds. It makes a huge difference. That's right. The next one that we have here is from Bryn Tillman. And Bryn Tillman is a social sales specialist, publishes awesome content around social selling also on LinkedIn for anybody who's interesting. And uh, let's listen in to what she had to say on the podcast. We have to detach from that marketing persona, those avatars that have been created and really look at LinkedIn's filters to find the right people. Now, another thing I recommend we do is a whole piece in social listening when we train. Let's break down the filters of our existing clients. So let's take a look at who they are now and find more companies and more buyers like them. So she's going into the specifics here really of social selling and of using Sales Navigator. But I think there's a couple of topics that she touches on, which were really interesting to me. So number one on a high level, of course, social selling. So it's always a hot topic at the moment. Yeah. Very polarizing. Half of the world's population seems to think it's a scam. The other half thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread. I'm definitely part of those people that think it really makes sense to pursue social selling, but you have to do it in the right way and also understand the nature of social selling. The other part that she touches on is understanding your buyer persona and really understanding your target market, which also feeds into the buyer acumen and really the understanding of who your buyers are beyond just a persona that marketing might be creating. So my first question to you, first of all, what's your impression in terms of social selling maturity and what is the common feedback and thoughts that you come across in terms of social selling across sales organizations that you interact with? Yeah, I've really only seen an incredibly positive response to social selling because we have so much information at our fingertips, right? We can learn so much about our buyer, reach out to them and you around them in the very places where they are. So I think it's just one of the most valuable tools. In previous organizations, we brought in vendors to help us get better at social selling. And I actually have an incredible sales enablement leader on my team who is just a social selling rock star. I have learned so much from her and she brought even better insights into our organization than our external vendor. I think it's where we need to be. And again, like there's just way too much information out there to not leverage it and not be creative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think from my point of view, what I see, the organizations that are most effective in actually implementing social selling programs, they have already adopted that mindset that is necessary to be successful in social selling. So stop pushing products, stop pitching and start engaging and start having conversations. And I think yeah. that sort of mindset that you would have outside of social media if you already have that, easily then translates into social channels. And it's just another mode of communication to bring that sort of mindset to life. So that's sort of what I see out the market. Absolutely. So the second part that she touches on as well is the buyer persona. And buyer acumen is something that I have been thinking a lot about recently. 
And we also have an interview coming up with Mike Kunkel on that topic. And when it comes to biopersonas, something that or feedback that I receive over and over again is that sales teams oftentimes see a big discrepancy between the biopersonas being provided by marketing teams. And they oftentimes formulate their own view on buyer personas in their day to day. So they, they kind of have that picture in mind of the kind of person that they talk to, what sort of resonates with them. And those marketing buyer personas are oftentimes more or less a caricature of what the buyers actually look like. This person is into craft beer, loves tabs and long weekends away. Who's that? Me? (laughs) That's right. Sounds like me. No, I don't have any (laughs) tattoos. I I love craft beer though, but. What's your experience on that front when it comes to biopersonas? Do you think there's a disconnect between the sort of biopersona work being done by marketing departments and what can sales do to actually power the process and make that creation of biopersonas more effective? Yeah, I've definitely been part of an organization where our biopersonas were so unrelatable and so complex. We had like months of training and workshops and I'm like, these are people that we're talking to all the time. So there's a bad way to do it, as you mentioned. But in my current organization, thankfully, our marketing team and product marketing team, they're obsessed with Gong and call recording. So they are listening to customer calls. They're talking to our sales team. They're talking to our customer success team and really leaning into who are the people we're talking to? What do they care about? Finding the trends through insights from the field, insights from the tech, that we have available. And we do run a monthly field advisory board. And generally, it's with product marketing and marketing. So we ensure there's a built in feedback loop. And those sessions generally have very targeted topics. And for something like buyer personas, we're going through this exercise right now, there's a ton of back and forth, a ton of collaboration, and a lot of alignment. So the team really does have their finger on the pulse of what's happening out there, who are our real customers versus bringing in a vendor and having them put together the person that you just described. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the biggest benefit of B2B versus B2C, right? Yes. In B2C, businesses are reliant on creating focus groups and having a artificial environment where people talk about a certain product, which oftentimes also doesn't consider that those people might not be thinking about the product all the time. But in B2B, you actually have that real world focus group all the time by talking to sales. So I think that's a big opportunity missed if you don't put those channels in place, like you said, where you actively pursue that feedback and then capture it and then pass it on across sales and marketing. So I think from my impression, the organizations that I deal with, I think there's still a lot of ground to cover on that front and there's an increased awareness. And I think there is a big win to be achieved and a big opportunity looming for organizations in markets specifically that tend not to go through that exercise. So I think a massive opportunity ahead for those sort of companies. Yeah. All right. So that was it for our expert interview insights. I want to move on to the new section of our stream. The very first one that I want to share is the announcement around the funding for Apollo.io. So Apollo.io raises 110 million US dollars in Sequoia-led round. So pretty staggering numbers there. And I think really a reflection of what's going on in the sales tech space at the moment. And are you familiar with Apollo.io? Oh, I wasn't. Okay. But I did take a spin through the article and it was really interesting. Yeah, so Apollo.io, for those who are not familiar, that's essentially a 
sales database that allows you to filter for certain criteria, similar to what you would do with Sales Navigator. And then you're able to create lists and then you're able to utilize those lists to automate prospecting sequences, specifically with email. And then you're also able to do a phone recording. So it's a bit of a mix between Sales Navigator, a marketing automation platform, and also Gong, I would say. Mm -hmm. The thing that really strikes me here is like, first of all, massive amounts of money being spent here and really heavy investment in the sales tech space, which is obviously a reflection of the fact that a lot of investors are seeing massive opportunity there. But then also the automation and scale part of the nature of Apollo.io, which is also really interesting to me, just because I still haven't finalized my opinion or really formed my opinion on what I think about all those platforms that promise unlimited scale in sales. Yeah, Everybody's talking about B2B sales becoming more human and B2B sales being more consultative. And it's all about the seller actually becoming a consultant and leading the buyer through that process. And uh, from my point of view, especially in the prospecting phase, SDRs are oftentimes the first point of contact for a brand. And especially if the brand awareness isn't there, they're essentially brand ambassadors that leave the very first impression. Yeah. And I'm always not sure whether it is a good idea to try and introduce scale at that stage and um, really risk your brand reputation when it comes to really automated interactions with buyers. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so many organizations I've been a part of have gone back and forth on that of like, how far do we go with automation? How much time do we spend on personalization or customization? So it's interesting. I think it depends on which strategy you're running. Yeah. Right. And I think for the current company I work at, we are working on brand recognition. So those hyper-customized interactions and understanding of our customers becomes so important. But something you mentioned is interesting and something I've been thinking about, given some of the other articles we're going to be talking about today, is tech fatigue and having so much tech available to our teams. And really ensuring that whatever tech we're purchasing is making it easier for our sellers to focus on the important activities and ensuring that the tech we're bringing in fits into our strategy. So in your case, it's like, is this the right fit or not? So that's broad. I have a lot of opinions about it, but it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just important to maintain that strategic focus and also keep that discussion going around whether it makes sense to introduce a platform just because you like the pitch and you like the, the proposition right. or whether you consider your strategy first and then see how technology fits into that big picture. And I think the fact that so much money is being spent on investments in that space is also a reflection that not everybody might actually go through that exercise of developing their strategy first and then purchasing a platform. So I think there's a conflict of interest there to a certain degree in the sense that sales teams or organizations want to scale sales and create big impacts by helping their buyers in market, right? But at the same time, those platforms out there have an interest in selling as many licenses as possible and might not necessarily in each case have a vested interest in the platform being used responsibly. So I'm kind of on the fence on that. And I would always advocate for strategy coming first before you spend lots of money on a sales tech platform. I couldn't agree more. I can't remember the stat, but I think it's like companies typically have like 13 different pieces of tech for sales or sales enablement and maybe eight of those actively get used. And I think probably 
a huge factor there is not having the right strategy to support the usage of that tech or the tech just not being relevant to your business. That's right. Lots of money being wasted there. <laughs> Let's move on to the next point on the agenda, which is the state of sales enablement survey. It's a survey conducted by Sales Enablement Pro, not by the State of Sales Enablement podcast, even though the name might suggest that. Yeah. Yeah. Talk us through what that is all about, Devin. Yeah. And I think as we all know, there are a ton of surveys that go out on enablement trends, the state of sales enablement, and other types of surveys that go out throughout the year. So Sales Enablement Pro has been running this survey for about seven years, I think. And it's designed to track enablement trends the overall evolution of the enablement function and so many different variables in between. So this one is always interesting because it includes participants from all different types of companies, startups, major players, but also folks from various locations and industries. So a pretty wide group of survey participants. So the goal for this year is to track enablement momentum and highlight where enablement is making an impact on business performance which is a story I think we all aspired to tell and execute against very quickly on logistics. So the survey is still active. I believe it runs through the end of March. And I took the survey the other day. And personally, I try to participate in as many of these as I possibly can. Full transparency, I usually move through them very quickly. So I was especially curious about this one. So and a little bit more time on the questions. And some of the key themes they covered include, as we mentioned, business results, how enablement can influence those, sales climate, team structure, tech stack, hot topic, and cross-functional collaboration. So it's interesting. The questions and answers make it blatantly obvious that there are still so many variables to how enablement teams function at various organizations, including what enablement is responsible for, who they report to, all of those variables lead to incredibly different experiences and charters and expectations and roles and responsibilities for enablement teams, which makes consistency in the function so challenging. And you and I have talked a little bit about this. We're going to talk about it even more today. But we also have revenue enablement, right, which is so much bigger than in just sales enablement. And I am super curious to see the breakdown of how teams are structured and who they support and kind of how we net out from a sales enablement and revenue enablement perspective. And it's really interesting to me because enablement is a function that's dedicated to creating consistency, simplicity, making our team more effective, right? And like the repeatable, predictable approach. Yet when we look at the survey, that's been created with a sales enablement focus, it's hard to pin down what our function really does when it continues to morph and evolve daily. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on that because I feel like it's a running theme through a lot of the articles and news bits that we're looking at today. I'm a big fan of those large-scale surveys because it speaks to the evolution of the space. And I think the reason why sales enablement has gained so much traction in recent times is because that body of knowledge around what sales enablement is, what sort of results you can achieve, what typically does a successful approach look like, those kind of things, uh, that body of knowledge is forming. And I think those sort of surveys, no matter if it's sales enablement pro or sales enablement collective, 
we'll look at one of their surveys, I think later on as well. But all of those larger scale surveys that look at the industry as a whole across the whole world, I think are really contributing to the discussion and helping us to identify what really works well. So I'm still due to take that survey. I just put it on my to-do list. I was going to ask you. <laughs> and yeah, I would encourage anybody listening to this to do the same. Definitely a big fan also of the previous ones. And yeah, I'm curious to see what sales enablement and sales enablement success as well will look like according to the survey. Yeah. I think we'll have to pencil in our review of the survey once the results are in. That's right. That's right. We'll do that for sure. What, do you know when it's coming out? I don't know when it's coming out, but I do know that it wraps up at the end of the month. Yeah, yeah. It says here, concludes at the end of March. I'm not sure when it comes out. It typically takes a while to analyze the data and design everything, but yeah, probably April, May sort of time frame. We'll be ready. All right. Let's move on to the next item, which is the. Women in ICT Awards in Australia. And that one is an interesting one yeah. from an Australian perspective, of course. I'm sure the Women in ICT Awards is not a massive one over there in America. But the reason why I wanted to point that out is because Kelly Griffith from Slack, who I've also met at the last Sales Enablement Society conference, it was remote. So I had the pleasure of interacting with her, a great enabler. So congrats to Kelly for winning this award. But the reason I, I wanted to briefly touch on this, not only to congratulate Kelly and really point that sort of award out that really rewards female excellence in the ICT market, which stands for information, communication and technology, by the way, I wanted to hear your thoughts on those kind of gender specific awards or taking a broader stroke, like minority specific awards. I mean, I'm a almost middle-aged white guy, so it's always a tough one for me to really talk about that space because I don't think I've got the yeah. slightest idea of what it means to be a minority or to be not having the same opportunities as everybody else. So I don't want, even want to pretend that. But I'm really curious to hear, do you think that sort of like more niche awards are actually helping the cause of creating equality or is that kind of creating boundaries and not comparing the people that are being nominated for those awards to the rest of the industry. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's incredible because there are so many other forums for awards that are open to everyone, different folks, different industries, different backgrounds. And there's actually a quote from Kelly in the article that really resonated with me that I think drives home the point of why these awards are so important. So Kelly says that women don't necessarily get tapped on the shoulder in this industry to progress their careers proactively. So do your homework, have the courage to put your hand up, ask, and back yourself. When I read that, Felix, I was sitting in my office by myself, like fist pumping, like, yes, <laughs> this is so accurate, it's spot on. And I know she's speaking specifically about her industry, but it's also true in enablement. It's exciting for me because as a female enablement leader in the space, I can help to create that voice for my team and elevate them. I had a leader say to me a few years back, Devin, I don't even know your career path is an enablement. Like, do you want to be in HR or something? And he was like, well, what could possibly be next for you in enablement? And this was someone who had face value understood enablement as a function and the value that enablement brought to their organization, but they simply couldn't fathom a growth plan 
or enablement is an exec leader. Now, his comment, I like to think, wasn't necessarily gender-based, but I think Kelly's comment is so much bigger than gender or industry. Yeah, You have to speak up for yourself, celebrate yourself. And these types of awards and this forum only brings it to the forefront, brings it to the surface and really elevates this incredible work that's often done behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I see your point there. And I think it's definitely a way to really surface work and celebrate great work being done that would normally not be surfaced. And I think to your point of just raising your hand and asking rather than being tapped on the shoulder, that's certainly something that might not be coming natural to some females. My wife is no exception there. My <laughs> wife works in human resources. And yeah. as far as I can tell, the exposure that I have to her work and listening to her interactions within her business, sitting next to her in our home office, right? Yeah. I just think like she does an incredible job and is such a superstar. And she just got a promotion recently and she was really surprised and really humbled. And I, I always thought it's actually not a surprise. And I think backing yourself by raising your hand should not only limit it to awards, but should be part of day to day. And yeah. as a male, I can definitely tell females don't have any reason to be afraid of that. And I think there's more opportunity looming that you probably think if you raise your hand. Yeah. So I would encourage anybody to back themselves and ask for that promotion and that broader remit. Yeah. And it's hard to do. Like I have all of the inspirational posters and mugs, like get it girl. And, <laughs> and I still, I was doing a performance review a few years ago and my team crushed it that half of the year. I crushed it. We did such an incredible job and I was so hesitant to give myself the score that I knew myself and my team deserved. I totally doubted myself. I was like, oh, they're going to think I'm arrogant and, and maybe I wasn't as good. And, you know, like the self-doubt and I'm looking at my mug and I'm like, you can do it. And thankfully, I had an incredible mentor who was like, if you don't celebrate yourself, call out your achievements, be your biggest advocate. No one else is going to do it for you. So it's hard, but do it. That's right. And you'll be surprised how many people will actually be happy for you yes. if you make it public. People are cheering for you and you will get more support than you think. So just do it. Just do it. All right. So the next one up in our agenda is the sales enablement salary survey, which also kind of feeds into that topic of gender equality because they also talk about gender specific salary data. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah. I'm going to take us on a a little journey, if you'll come with me, Felix. And we're going to make our way into the sales enablement survey. But I want to talk about a few things because we did talk about International Women's Day, but I also want to talk about today. And so this is very relevant to the gender and racial pay gap that exists. But today is March 15th and it is Equal Pay Day in the U.S. And I actually did not know about this until I started digging into all of our news for the month. And so today marks the amount of time on average that women of all races and ethnicities had to work into 2022 to make the same amount as men were paid in 2021. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So a woman who works full time is paid on average 83% as much as a typical man, which is wild. Yeah. So I had to mention that because we are going to talk a little bit about pay equity and transparency. And this survey lends itself nicely to that. 
But one thing that Felix, you and I were chatting about briefly that I want to get your take on is, as we mentioned, March 8th was International Women's Day. And the theme this year was Break the Bias. And I'm sure that you've seen those inspirational posts from your colleagues and your peers on Instagram and LinkedIn celebrating breaking the bias. But I'm sure that you've also seen all of the posts from various businesses and companies on Twitter about National Women's Day. So at the same time, Francesca Lawson and Ali Fensum created the Gender Pay Gap Bot on Twitter. So incredible. And so there, you probably described it as to put the gender pay gap data back into the spotlight. So there's a great article on Politico about the folks who created it. But basically, this bot retweets inspirational International Women's Day messages from big companies, but shares documented information about the company's approach to pay parity, calling out some of those highly performative posts. So I'm going to give you an example. And then, Felix, I want to get your take on this. So the example they shared is when Ryanair, which is an airline, sent out their International Women's Day tweet. There was a picture of female employees, happy. And Brenda Paygapbot sent out a tweet saying, in this organization, women's median hourly pay is 68.6% lower than men's. <laughs> Whoa. Which is unacceptable. And some companies are like doing it right. So I spent some time in their Twitter feed, but would love to get your take on this and the idea of these companies sharing these performative posts. I think it's more of a reflection of the fact that the marketing team doesn't really do its homework and tries to capitalize on International Women's Day. Yeah. Talk is cheap, as they say. So I think anybody who really plays that game and wants to play that game and really be virtue signaling really needs to do their homework first. And I yeah, I went through that Twitter feed and uh, had a good laugh at some of them. But yeah. You also have to say that there were actually some companies that had a very small discrepancy. In some cases, even women were earning more. So I think for those companies, they deserve to be celebrated even more. Absolutely. That sort of metric that this bot was referring to and that publicly available data, I think it was a UK database that they yes. were referring to. I think this is a great metric for the gender pay quality discussion to focus on. Yeah. It's great to do general statements, and I'm sure it makes everybody feel warm and fuzzy talking about it. But yep. at the end of the day, you have to have that number right. And I think yeah. it's great that the gender pay board has put focus on that metric. And I think it's certainly something that should be also the focus of marketing departments rather than yeah. posting stock images of happy males and females. Like, yay! <laughs> walking down the runway for Ryanair. Awesome. So we had to go on that little detour because it was... So interesting. But let's take a moment and quickly dig into the sales enablement salary survey. Yep. This one, I feel like we need an entire day. Like we could spend a day going through this survey, but we're just going to share some very specific highlights. And I think it's worth sharing the backstory quickly. So over 200 sales enablement professionals were surveyed to gain an understanding of average enablement salaries, bonuses and incentives they have access to, how satisfied they are with comp. And additionally, this survey breaks down the results by region, title, role, industry, gender, and the results are really interesting. So Felix, I know you're going to have some hot takes here, so feel free to jump on in. But a few quick things I want to note. One, 
the average enablement salary worldwide, regardless of any of the factors I just mentioned, so again, region, gender, title, is $119,000, with the median salary at about 107. So that's great. The really exciting thing to see here is that from last year to this year, so 2021 to 2022, the average salary increased about, I think, almost 11%. But here's where I want to chat. So the results from last year's survey showed that women in sales enablement were out-earning men by about $4,000 on average. This year's survey showed that males now average 13000 more a year than females. I want to know everything. I want to dig into this, but <laughs> that was really concerning. And obviously, there are so many variables involved when doing surveys. But the other interesting thing, it makes sense in context, is that females are 19% more likely to receive some sort of bonus or commission or additional compensation. The takeaway being that men tend to have a higher base and females are likely to have higher variables. I am by no means an analyst or a data expert, but it's really interesting. So Felix, I would love to know your thoughts there or if there was anything else in the survey that caught your attention. First of all, do you know what the sample size was this year compared to last year? Not compared to last year. So I definitely need to check in on that, but that could definitely play a part. Yeah, yeah. And no, I think sample size might play a role here. Yeah, it's really hard to tell why the discrepancy. It might be a reflection of the fact that sales enablement in general is becoming more involved with senior executive leadership. And mm -hmm. if you look at the sort of data around leadership roles, there might still be more men in those senior leadership roles that get involved with senior executive leadership on a sales enablement basis. So it might just be a reflection of that, mm -hmm. that pre-existing inequality in terms of leadership roles. Yeah. But it's definitely concerning that it's going backwards. Yeah. It would be interesting to see the seniority of the sort of roles or the breakdown of the seniority of the roles from last year compared to this year. Yeah. I think that would be an interesting exercise to go through. One thing that really struck me and I found really interesting was the breakdown by years of experience and the salary. And that was actually unexpected because you would expect that depending on the years of experience that the salary would actually go up gradually because more experience should equal a greater impact and greater seniority and greater involvement with senior executive leadership, which means you can create a greater impact across the organization. But what you can see here in that graph is that it increases from less than one year to three to five years, from 107,000 to 131,000. But then it goes back again and quite significantly and Interesting. even less than the people with less than one year experience, which should definitely be a concern for people in that bracket. I think... Personally, and I'm also keen to hear your thoughts on that one, but I think it might be a reflection of sales enablement maturing and that the new people uh, pushing into sales enablement, having a more up-to-date approach and a more stronger revenue focus, which then ultimately earns them greater attention by senior management and ultimately a higher salary. And if we think about the old school sales enablement, so to speak, sales enablement before it was sales enablement. And what I see with people who've been doing it for a long time and don't really 
have the latest up-to-date tools from a sales enablement point of view and mindset in terms of the kind of strategic impact you can create. What I see with those people is that there's still a little focus on activity and there's still a very heavy emphasis on sales training, right? So it's essentially sales training being rebranded as sales enablement. So I think that might be a reason for that. What are your thoughts? I think that's spot on. And to your point, I would really like to see last year's data and kind of compare where the differences are, but that could totally make sense. I'm going to move over to another part of the survey because I feel like there could be a similar cause is how varied the sales enablement manager title and role is. Because another discrepancy is folks with higher titles are getting paid less, <laughs> which is really interesting. And, and in the survey, they kind of call out, well, it could be someone at a smaller company with a higher title. And so that's where it's like continuing to drive consistency in what are we delivering? What are the desired outcomes? What does this role mean? And what does leveling really look like? Because that was just all across the board. So the answer is, I don't know, because there are so many variables, but I found myself being like, what? Oh my God, like for half of these. So I don't know, maybe maybe we get somebody in uh, to run through the data with us. I would love that. That's right. If anybody's listening from Sales Enablement Collective, please help us understand, shed light on this mystery. Yes. The other, we'll talk about this quickly, but there's another slide there that shows, depending on which team enablement reports into, their salaries change dramatically with marketing being the highest. Wow. And then I think ops, C-level, and then sales. Right. Also very interesting. Hmm. That's very odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I didn't didn't know how it was like tied back to organizational size or structure because there's obviously some correlation there, but interesting. I'm really keen to make that comparison to last year in particular. Yeah. Because I think also, at least from an Australian perspective, what I can say is that because Australia is so heavily reliant on new labor forces joining the country, because it's a growing country, there's a shortage at the moment, especially in sales of really good salespeople uh, migrating to Australia. And I can tell that sales enablement professionals in particular are pretty hot property over here. So I would expect the pandemic to be contributing positively from a salary perspective, at least here in Australia. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. And I think there's one quick thing to call out before we move on to our next topic, which is right in line with this. In the survey, it said that people don't feel like the state of sales enablement salaries reflects the value that enablement adds, which poses a bigger question. I think we've been kind of talking about this in different ways. How do we continue to elevate the value of sales enablement within the organizations we support? I just kept thinking of that iceberg picture where it's like, oh, our teams need the certifications and the workshops and the training, but they have no idea about the countless hours of research, testing, building, feedback that's being done. And it's no wonder that our teams are frustrated that they're just looked at as a, oh, you're doing the certification. You're doing that workshop. So There's work to be done across the board, but I found it to be so interesting. I think on that front, it is also important for, again, sales enablement professionals to raise their hand within the organization and to actually back themselves and be, in a sense, ambitious enough to actually correlate their work or at least in formalizing their strategy and focusing on revenue-related metrics. So I think 
that is, from my experience, a key to getting more attention because nobody listens when you talk about training participation, but everybody listens when you talk about sales cycle length, exactly. win rate, deal size, and so on. So I think it changes the conversation. Yeah. And that's something that sales aimment can influence. You don't own those metrics, so to speak. There's still a lot of variables, but you can make an attempt to communicate your potential impact on those metrics in formalizing your strategy and also communicating it to senior management. So I'm running my own business now, so I know that I focus on those metrics for myself, but I can also tell you in previous leadership roles, that was what got me the attention from senior management and what gave me more leverage within the organization to make more things happen when I started talking about results rather than activity. Yep. Meaningful business impact. Exactly. Let's move on to the next item. We still have a couple left. So there was a post from Christina Brady, yeah. who is the chief strategy officer at Sales Assembly. What was that all about? Yeah, so this one was really interesting. Christina talked about the average compensation in sales. So her post was specific to sales roles and other quota carrying roles like CS and account management in the U.S. But she talks about how a lot of execs in the space want to make sure they're making affordable, sustainable, consistent, and scalable salary decisions. And this is obviously in light of the great resignation, but also making sure that we're building a sustainable sales ecosystem where we can actually pay our reps and, and continue to grow them in our business. So as mentioned, this is specific to the U.S. and the different markets in the U.S. And within the U.S., salaries can vary by 10 to 15 percent if not more, depending on which state you're located in. But if part of your role in enablement is to assist with sales hiring in the U.S., it is great to have a sense of what those industry averages are and how to ensure you're able to make compelling and interesting offers to folks who are interested in joining your organization. And so we didn't really talk about this much, but the theme for me when it comes to pay equity and just general equity across the board is transparency. The more we know about what standard salary should look like, what a salary range for a role could look like, the more power we have, right? So Christina really focuses on giving people information they need to make the right decisions, to hire the right folks, and to give power to interviewees and, and employees to know like, hey, what do I deserve to be making? What is the right salary for me? Am I being compensated appropriately? And with that information, it can go back to leadership. They can renegotiate their base salary, their variables. So it's really, really important to share these types of posts and create awareness around what expectations are. And I, I can't think of the staff, but generally speaking, women and people of color are not as likely to negotiate a salary to ask for more. And when they do, it's often for less than their male counterparts. So I say this over and over again, knowledge is power, transparency is key. And again, this post just got me really excited because it's creating that awareness around what's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think when it comes to salary, it's always this awkward dance between the, oh my gosh. the hiring business and the applicant. And I've seen some businesses that are super transparent around salary data. I can't think of exactly which ones there are, but there's some businesses that literally 
have a rate card, so to speak, which breaks down exactly what sort of roles earn how much, in which scenarios a certain premium is applied, like if people live in the city versus people live in the country, if they have family or not. So there's full transparency. And there's also salary data accessible internally from every single employee. So everybody can see what everybody is on, right? So amazing. that's, of course, an extreme case of transparency. But I think that suddenly then completely takes the wind out of the sails of that awkward dance and everybody's on the same page and everybody knows what's going on, right? So yeah, I think companies still want to, of course, in a lot of cases, maintain that leverage and that possibility of getting a really good deal, just like right. employees want to have a really good deal and potentially earn more than what they're worth on paper. But I think if a business is struggling with employee dissatisfaction because of salary, I think that highly transparent approach is definitely a way to go. Yeah. And two interesting things that are happening in the U.S. in my home state of New York, they are actually requiring that salary ranges are in job postings. And that's great. And in California, where I live now, employers need to disclose pay range for a job if the applicant asks. So to your point, there can still be the dance, which is not ideal. But again, just creating those little moments of transparency or incrementally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, in the beginning of my career, I was the exception to the rule that men negotiate more for salaries. I was terrible <laughs> no. in the very beginning. I got much better quickly, but I think very early on in my career, I was terrible. And I think those sort of discussions definitely contribute to that for everybody. Right. The next topic also feeds into that whole discussion around job satisfaction and the great resignation that everybody's talking about. And there was a survey conducted by Dooley, which is a sales enablement platform. I'm not exactly sure what they do in all detail, but they have launched a report, a survey which they call the Sales Happiness Index. And I think the notion of that report is really interesting because it looks at the reasons why salespeople are happy or unhappy in their jobs, and mm -hmm. which I think is this absolute gold for sales leaders in particular who want to build a long-term team and want to not only use salary as a leverage, which is, of course is a big reason why people are in sales in general as well, yeah. but also generally the sort of factors that play into satisfaction. And I'll read a few out here for you. Mm -hmm. So it says here in our salary happiness index, we asked folks who said they're planning to look for another opportunity, what's pulling them away. Here's what they said. 43% cited a lack of benefits. 33% cited a lack of access to best tools and technology to be successful which is interesting. I was going to say. <laughs> coming from a tech vendor. And 31% cited a lack of bonuses. Mm -hmm. So that two salary-related ones or two remuneration-related ones and one tech-related one. So not sure how insightful that actually is because, as I said, it comes from a tech vendor. But there are a few other stats here. We also asked those who said they were happy at the current company but open to other opportunities what would convince them to walk away. So this is obviously interesting for any company who is looking to hire. And 60% said they'd be motivated to leave the company for better benefits. 51% would be motivated to leave for higher pay. 50% would be motivated to leave for more flexibility, which is an interesting one because flexibility is free for any hiring companies. Yeah, You just have to put the right structures in place to still ensure productivity. 
36% would be motivated to leave for a company that offers better technology or resources. And 21% would leave for a role where they could spend less time on non-revenue generating activities or NRGs, which is also interesting. I think that stat in particular is a interesting correlation to the revenue related metrics. If you think about that, the purpose of a salesperson is to generate revenue and heavy customers, of course. But if your measure of success is revenue, any non-revenue generating activities are actually working against the individual salesperson. So I think that's definitely a big one. And I've recently spoke to a company that is quite mature in sales enablement, not very well resourced, but quite mature. And they were actually taking the number of time spent with non-revenue generating activities, a lower number being better, obviously, as a measure of sales enablement success. So I think that sort of area is also becoming more and more relevant and being on the radar out there. Yeah. Now, also feeding into that, we also had a post that we came across on Reddit about managers and how sales managers can put in the work to retain salespeople. What are your thoughts on that one? I love this post. So I'm also such a fan of the subreddit R sales. If folks aren't familiar, it's gold. There's so much goodness in there, real experience of sales teams and sales leaders in this case, looking to level up. And it's incredible insights for enablement to see how sales teams are really feeling. So as you mentioned, there's a ton of reasons for the great resignation. I do like the other names for it too, though, like great renegotiation and great reevaluation. But basically, this is a sales leader who's sharing what they're doing to create a better experience for their sales team. And it's someone who acknowledges that replacing their super strong performers isn't easy. And I know that all of my onboarding program managers totally get that. But it's in the hands of management to create an incredible experience for their teams. So you talked about things like better perks, flexibility, more money, but things like treatment on the job is in that list, right? And managers have full control over that. They don't need a budget to do that. They don't need the people team. And so there are a few things that the poster called out that really resonated with me. Again, simple, mostly free things you can do to create an incredible experience for your teams. And he talks about meaningful recognition. So actually taking the time to Slack your team member, text them, shout them out in whatever platform you use, like amazing job. Don't make it about deals. Don't make it about tech. Just celebrate the great work that people are doing. We talked about this earlier. Managers can do that for people. He talks about no internal meetings on Friday. I try so hard to do this with my team. Without a doubt, meeting Friday is clear. By the end of the week, there's a million meetings. But again, small things we can do. Mental health days are super important. He talks about including those where it doesn't impact your PTO or vacation time. And then making sure we're actually nourishing our team's member, nourishing their mental health, giving them what they need, giving them better training. I did love that they called that out. Not micromanaging people, letting them work from home. That's the flexibility that we talked about. And it got me so excited to hear a sales leader sharing this and saying, what can I do differently? How can I be better? And you saw the responses in that thread of people being like, will you be my manager? You're so amazing. Oh my gosh. And again, most of the things in that list are free and easy to do and can create 
a stellar experience for your teams. Yeah, yeah. I think it also comes down to that almost meme circulating in the sales space, which is that you shouldn't promote your best sellers into managerial positions. I think management training is something that's not done often enough. And I was lucky enough to have it in my time. And this definitely reflects some of the themes that I've been taught around empathy and employee management, like along the lines of don't treat people like you want to be treated, but treat them like they want to be treated. Exactly. I think the best managers that I had throughout my career also followed their mantra and applied a management style to me that was completely different to the management style that they applied with the other direct reports. I think those kind of things that are mentioned here, amazing. I can totally agree with those. And I think that's something that should be pursued. But then beyond that also, I think that's general empathy part and also recognizing that you're dealing with people and you have to have the best interest of people in mind in order for them to pay back and to really put their best effort forward. I think that's absolutely crucial in modern management, especially in sales. I couldn't agree more. Devin, we're running out of time. I could go on for hours. I could tell you that much. Same here. It has been a blast. It might surprise you, but it's much better than talking to the camera by myself. Well, that's good. Like I've done previously. I like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually much, much better because okay. I'm talking to you. So thank you so much for the first episode of this month in sales enablement. I had a blast talking to you, Devin. Same here. I'm looking forward to many more of those. Thank you, everybody who's been tuning in today. If you are interested in continuing the conversation, please message us on LinkedIn. We'll also try and pepper in some audience feedback where possible in the agenda for next episode. Yeah, if you want more of those insights, please follow the State of Sales Enablement podcast on all the major podcast platforms or simply connect with Devin McDermott or Felix Kruger on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement. You need to lead to your solution, not with your solution. When you lead with your solution, which marketing often does, it comes across as a pitch. So we need to provide content, not that we want to share, but content that our buyer wants to consume.